Would you take your Bible and go to Mark chapter 10? Mark chapter 10, and I'll be reading from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 52, in just a moment. Palm Sunday is about celebrating and being shaped by the self-giving heart of Jesus. Today is the day on the church calendar where we celebrate the unflinching resolve of Christ to enter into Jerusalem to the sound of applause that by the end of the week, he would then be surrounded by the sound of rejection and then ultimately sentenced to suffer by crucifixion. This is all the prelude to the resurrection that we will be celebrating, Lord willing, next Sunday. And in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 52, Jesus wants his disciples and he wants us to know that this was always God's plan. This is what he was sent for. Jesus knew it and so in love, he wants his disciples to know it too. No one would take his life. He would give it freely. He would willingly lay down his life in submission to the Father's will to save his people from their sins. Palm Sunday is all about revealing the self-giving heart of Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, our text this morning, verses 32 through 52, Jesus has not entered into Jerusalem yet. The triumphal entry has not taken place. We're moments away from that particular instance But on this road, during this walk to Jerusalem, Jesus wants to give us and his disciples a deeper gaze into the self-giving heart of the Savior. And at the same time, expose the self-serving hearts of his disciples. This is not to crush his disciples, but to call them to join him on the path of living a self-giving life. And so with all that in view, let me direct your attention now to the text, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 52. Let us hear the word of God. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was about to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. 
And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those to whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and called him and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. That is the word of God. May he add his blessing to its reading and teaching by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. The big idea I would like us to consider from this episode this morning is how Jesus invites us to join him in living a self-giving life. Let's take a look at this in three parts. First, the self-giving heart of Jesus. Second, the self-serving heart of man. And then finally, the invitation to emulate the heart of Jesus. Let's first note from this episode the self-giving heart. Of Jesus. If you've ever studied the Gospel of Mark, you would know that Mark uses a teaching technique called the sandwich method. In each occurrence of this technique, you have a primary lesson that's in the middle, sandwiched together by two supporting sections that on the surface may seem disconnected, but they are meant to be understood together and actually make the point crystal clear. I believe we have one here in Mark 10. 32 through 52. It's not one of the easier ones to recognize, but I believe it follows the pattern. Here's the first part of the sandwich in chapter 10, verses 31 through 34. Jesus here in the front end of this collection tells his disciples what will happen when he gets to Jerusalem. Namely, that he will be rejected, tortured, murdered, and then on the third day rise from the dead. So the question is, why is he going to go to Jerusalem if all of that is going to happen to him there? The disciples are amazed and they are afraid. Why is he willing to go through with all this? Well, now we jump down to the end of the sandwich in chapter 10, verses 46 to 42. Jesus shows his disciples, he illustrates for his disciples why He's willing to go through all this. 
Jesus shows his disciples why he's willing by showing mercy to blind Bartimaeus on the roadside. Bartimaeus, you may have noticed in the scripture reading, he won't stop screaming, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the disciples think that he's a distraction. They're trying to get to Jerusalem. He's in the way. They tell him to be quiet, but Jesus says, no. Bring him to me. And Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? There you have it. There's the heart of Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus will do what needs to be done for you. His heart is to give you whatever you need. Bartimaeus illustrates that our needs aren't a frustration to Jesus. Our needs are why Jesus is here. Our needs are why Christ is on the way to Jerusalem. Your need is not a frustration to Jesus. Meeting your need is the heart of Jesus. So here's why Jesus is willing to go through all that he is going to go through in Jerusalem. He will be rejected, betrayed, falsely accused, unjustly sentenced to crucifixion, hoisted upon a cross, and he will pour out his blood. Why? Because Jesus will do whatever needs to be done for you. He will give all that he has in order to meet our deepest need. That's the point. He has come to give his life a ransom for many. And blind Bartimaeus is a picture of us all. In our sin, we are blind and helpless and hopeless on our own. And our only hope is for Jesus to have mercy on us. And that is why he's going to Jerusalem, because he will have mercy on us. He is going to do for sinners what, what sinners can't do for themselves. That's the heart of Jesus. He spends his time for others. He gives his life for others. He spills his blood for others. Everything that Jesus is and everything that Jesus has will be given for the blind Bartimaeuses of the world. That is, everyone who recognizes that their only hope is for God to look upon them in mercy in their desperate condition. So what we see here first is the self-giving heart of Jesus. That's the reason he's on the road to Jerusalem. That's the gospel. That's the ultimate message of Holy Week, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. The self-giving heart of Jesus led him to give it all in order to meet our greatest need. And so before we even proceed any further, Understand this, Jesus went through all that he went through during what we recognize as Holy Week to meet your greatest need. All you have to do is like blind Bartimaeus, 
is recognize that in your desperate condition, only Jesus can do for you what needs to be done for you. And so all you do is ask him to have mercy. And he will have mercy. It's the self-giving heart of Jesus. But there's something else here. The self-giving heart of Jesus also exposes our self-serving hearts. We're not like Jesus. Even though we are made in his image, we don't do a great job at imaging him forth. He is self-giving in his nature, and we are self-serving in our nature. It's one of the reasons why we need his mercy. But if we're going to receive the mercy that we need from Christ, Jesus is instructing his disciples in this text that we're also called to follow him on the path of mercy. We're called to show his mercy. Those who receive his mercy must live their lives to show his mercy. And this, is, this all comes to light as the self-giving heart of Jesus is now contrasted with the self-serving hearts of James and John. So, so notice second how this story reveals the self-serving heart of man. Here we find in the middle of the sandwich the meat of the lesson that Jesus wants us to get here in this particular text. It begins with an awkward request from James and John. Look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now before we look at the awkward request, let me give you a little background on James and John. James and John are the brothers who left their father Zebedee's successful fishing business back at the beginning of this gospel in Mark chapter 1. They did this to follow Jesus. These guys are blue-collar, on-the-dock workers. They're rough around the edges. They're hard-working. They got fish guts under their fingernails. That's, that's the kind of guys they are. To give you a little bit more about their disposition, their personality, their nickname, the Sons of Thunder. Let's just say this, that these aren't the kind of guys that wear skinny jeans and drink herbal tea, okay? <laughs> these, these guys are blue-collar, hardcore, construction-type workers. Uh, James and John are also a part of what was called the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. Uh, even though um, the, all the disciples shared equal privilege and standing with God, with Christ, um, three of them were a part of a smaller group within the twelve that had more responsibility and more privilege, Peter, James, and John. And we see that, that privilege most clearly reflected just one chapter back as James and John were included with Peter to witness one of the most breathtaking moments prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that is the transfiguration of Christ. It's important to keep all of that in mind as James and John come with their awkward request to Jesus. Their request, which we'll see in a moment, is quite self-serving, is based on what they believe to be a legitimate place of privilege. They were closer to Jesus. They know more about Jesus. They've seen more of his glory. So they believe that entitles them to more honor. And so they make this awkward request. We want you to do whatever we ask. In other words, we want you to say yes to something before we tell you the something. 
right? And, and we don't fall for this, right? This is like the friend who comes to us and says, so hey, uh, are you free Saturday morning? And you're like, I'm not telling my friend I'm free until I know what he wants me to be free for. And Jesus is like, nice try, guys. What do you want me to do for you? Interesting that this same question is the question he asked Bartimaeus at the end of this section in verse 51. Same self-giving Jesus asking the same question, even though he knows the hearts of James and John, that they are asking a self-centered request. And then they finally let it out. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So they're a part of the inner circle now. They want to make sure they had that honor permanently. Think about it. If they're really coming to grips with what Jesus predicted is going to happen to him, if he's really going to die, he wants to be raised from the dead. They want to make sure that when Jesus sits upon his throne in glory, that they will have the distinct places of honor next to him on his right and his left. And you might not think this is a big deal, but in this culture, where you sat in proximity to a person of distinguished honor said something about your status, said something about your honor, whether it was at home or in the synagogue or at a wedding or in the palace, where you sat made a public statement about how great you were. So before we go, James and John, come on. Jesus is about to die and you're worried about where you're going to sit in the everlasting kingdom? Well, be, be, before we give them too hard of a time, let's, let's at least give them a little bit of credit. James and John know that they're not most important. They, they know that they don't deserve to sit in the center. They don't dispute that Jesus is the greatest. They acknowledge that he deserves to be right there in the middle, receiving the most honor and glory. They don't want to be number one. They just want to be tied for a second. What's this mean? James Edwards notes in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark that in this request we see the following. The brothers hope to honor Jesus while honoring themselves. They want to honor Jesus, but they also want to honor themselves. And so at the heart of this request... They want to keep honoring Jesus as they follow him into Jerusalem and honor themselves. And so this request is coming from a self-serving heart. They are seeing the greatness of Jesus as a means to their end. They're looking to leverage their privilege in close proximity to Jesus for their own honor. They're trying to get the most out of the relationship with Jesus for themselves. I mean, contrast that with the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He, he told John and James how to make legitimate requests to God. He said, pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught James and John that when they make requests to God, to request that God's honor be supreme, that God's honor be most 
most considered, that God's name and fame be most acknowledged. Tim Keller, in his comments on this text, makes the following comment about prayer in general, about making a request known to God. He says, true prayer seeks to mold our will to God's, not God's will to ours. And that's what James and John are trying to do in this request. They're trying to get God's will to bend to theirs as they're seeking to honor themselves. And so what becomes apparent in their prayer request is that they fail to see that the privileges of close proximity to Jesus are not ultimately for them. Their privileges in having close proximity to Jesus is meant to be for the sake of serving others. Look at how he responds to this in verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with, the baptism with which I'm baptized? In other words, Jesus says they're, they're not getting it. He's just told them why he's going to Jerusalem and what he's about to go through. And they don't get it. If they want to be honored with Jesus, then what they don't understand is that they're going to have to suffer like Jesus. Jesus will suffer great humiliation in Jerusalem before he's lifted up in great exaltation in the Father's glory. The cross must precede the crown. So even if James and John are starting to understand that Jesus is really going to suffer and he's really going to die, it's still unclear how much James and John grasp what all this suffering will be like and exactly what all this suffering will accomplish. Therefore, Jesus says, you don't understand what you're asking because you don't understand the cup that I'm about to drink from. And you don't understand the baptism that I'm about to encounter. And so what is it about this cup? What is it about this baptism? These are powerful symbols that are used throughout the scriptures to symbolize and help us understand what Jesus was about to encounter as he entered into Jerusalem. The cup is a symbol used to represent God's wrath and judgment on sin. For example, in Isaiah 51, verses 17 through 23, we read about the cup of his wrath and the goblet that makes men stagger. We read about it some more in Jeremiah 25, 15 through 17, where the Lord says, take from my hand the cup that is filled with the wine of my wrath, and when they drink it, they will stagger and go mad. So in scripture, the cup is a symbol of God's just wrath on human sin. Well, then there's the baptism. Baptism, as you would know, is most commonly used as a positive symbol. It's, a, it's symbolic of our cleansing from sin. In the New Covenant, it's, it's symbolic of our union with Jesus and new life in Christ. But here, it's obviously being used negatively. Most likely, the word baptism here, in connection with the cup, is referring to being placed under God's judgment. Think the days of Noah how a flood of judgment came and passed over the world and only Noah and his family were spared. 
So baptism literally means to be placed underwater. So I think baptism here symbolizes being placed under the flood of God's judgment. So putting these things together, cup and baptism, Jesus is explaining what he will experience when he goes to Jerusalem. Before he's honored, before he sits on his throne, before he's giving a name that is above every name, before Jesus is exalted to the highest place and honored forever in the kingdom of God, he first must encounter the worst suffering imaginable. Upon the cross, Jesus will drink the cup of God's judgment for sin and place himself under the flood of God's wrath. And he will do this as a suffering servant. He's doing this for others. His suffering is for others, and the honor he will receive on the other side of his suffering is the honor God gives him for saving his people from their greatest suffering. In other words, Jesus will be exalted on a throne as a reward for giving his life in service for others. So honor in the kingdom of God is a reward for self-giving service. So James and John, they want honor, but do they want to suffer for others to deserve that honor? I'm pretty sure this is supposed to be a rhetorical question, but they answer, we do, we will, we're able. And I don't know how, this is probably one of those moments, there's many moments like this where you just expect Jesus to do a face palm right? They don't get it. So rather than exposing how they don't get it, Jesus moves to the main lesson. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. I think this is a reference to how both James and John will ultimately suffer as martyrs for the sake of the gospel. He says, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So he declines this request for self-serving honor. And while their hearts now are exposed, Jesus uses this moment to teach not just James and John, but all of his disciples a lesson about emulating his self-given heart. And that's the final part I want us to consider, the invitation to emulate the heart of Jesus. Look at verse 41. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And they're probably not mad at James and John because of what they asked for. They're probably mad that they didn't ask first. Because these guys were always arguing over who was the greatest among them. But notice what Jesus teaches them in verses 42 through 44. And Jesus called them, all 12, to him and said, You know that there are those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles and how they lord it over them. And how their great ones exercise authority over them. And so Jesus begins to acknowledge that people with influence and authority tend to misuse that influence and authority. They tend to use it not to serve others, but to serve themselves. They exploit people to honor themselves rather than help people out of love. Jesus says, not in my kingdom. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever 
would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. In other words, here's where, here's where honor comes from in the kingdom of God. Honor comes from emulating the self-given heart of Jesus. Here's what's great. Here's what's honorable in the kingdom of God. Giving yourself for the sake of others. So Jesus takes James and John's desire for honor, along with the ongoing debate of who's the greatest among the 12, and he says, being great in the kingdom of God is not about what you get for yourself. Being great in the kingdom of God is about what you give in service for others. Here is what's honorable. Not to get, but to give. Here's what's honorable to God. To live your life, not to get, but to give. In other words, live your life emulating the self-giving heart of Jesus. That's an honorable life. Jesus is basically saying here, here's what's honorable. Be like me. Verse 45, he uses himself as an example. God can do that. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Look at this. Look at Jesus. Here he is. He takes all of his privilege, all of his authority, all of his power, all of his influence, and what does he use it for? To lay it all down for others. To lay it all down for the blind Bartimaeuses of the world to lay it all down for self-serving, big-headed men like these 12 disciples. That's why Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. And if you're going to be one of his followers, he invites us to come along on that path of service. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. Follow me where? Follow me on the path of self-giving. We can't live to both honor Jesus and honor ourselves. Jesus invites us to live a truly honorable life by emulating his self-giving heart. So we've seen the self-giving heart of Jesus. We've seen the self-serving heart of man we see the invitation to join Jesus on the path of self-giving. What are some of the takeaways for us as we seek to be affected by this lesson from Christ? Well, first and foremost, and most importantly, let's celebrate the self-giving heart of Jesus. He's on this road to Jerusalem for you. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for you. 
You needed him to go to Jerusalem. You needed him to be rejected. You needed him to be betrayed. You needed him to be scorned. You needed him to be mistreated. You needed him to be crucified. You needed him to die. And guess what? He did it. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he, he could have done some really amazing God things in those moments. He could have called legions of angels to come and rescue him from all this mistreatment, from all this dishonor, and he did not. He kept going all the way to the cross for you. It's the self-giving heart of Jesus. You are blind Bartimaeus. You needed this mercy. And he stopped on the road to save you. Let that, let that undo you again this Holy Week. He came to serve you out of his infinitely loving and benevolent self-giving heart. He would not stop for you. He went all the way to Jerusalem. Would you take some time, and even just in a few moments, to just celebrate the self-giving heart of Jesus? Here's a second takeaway. Would you join me in lamenting and repenting of your self-serving heart? We can't honor Jesus and ourselves at the same time. As I was considering the request of James and John in preparation for this teaching, I began to ask myself the question, what do my prayer requests reveal about my heart? Do I long for Jesus to help me make much of him? Or do I long for Jesus to make much of me? I began to think a lot this week, especially with being stuck at home. What do I do with my extra time? As I heard the news of the stimulus check being released to, to, to the majority of Americans, I began to ask myself the question, what, what do I want to do when I have some extra money? I began to realize, I love to use my time for me. I love to use money for me more than I want to admit. One thing the pandemic is doing for all of us, I believe, um, is it's revealing how self-oriented we are. Are we thinking more about ourselves or are we thinking more about others? Maybe this time of isolation is a mercy from God for the church. Maybe it's a mercy from God for us to take some considerable time to realize that when things get back to normal, <laughs> maybe there's some things that shouldn't be a part of our normal. Namely, how self-oriented we tend to be. Living for the kingdom of me, myself, and I versus the, king of God, the, this, the kingdom of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Maybe this time of isolation is 
is providing some moments for us to reorder our priorities when we get back to normal. Because if normal is selfish, my brothers and sisters, we don't want to go back to that. We want to lament it and repent of it. And then finally, another takeaway is to begin to more robustly emulate the self-giving heart of Jesus. What does it look like for you in this season to give, to live, to give more than to get? How can we be more self-giving on the path of love? I can't tell you exactly what that will look like for you, but I will tell you it will cost you. It will cost me. If I'm going to emulate the self-giving heart of Jesus, it's going to make things uncomfortable. It's going to mean doing things that aren't natural and are a bit uncomfortable with my time. It means that I'm going to do things that are a little bit uncomfortable and unnatural for me with my money. It means that I'm going to do some things, especially during a time where everyone's concerned about getting sick, that I'm going to do some things that might put me at risk in order that I might serve and love others who are in desperate need. Whatever it is that God may be calling us to do to emulate the self-giving heart of love, let's remember what it cost Christ. And so if we're going to be like him, it's going to cost us. I was just thinking about it this week. I mean, Christ gives us the ultimate example. But as I've been thinking about wanting to live my life more robustly in emulating the self-giving heart of Jesus, I've been seeing examples all around me this week. I interacted with Greg yesterday morning after he came back from helping out an elderly gentleman in the neighborhood. I saw it when I watched my son Payson helping Silas do his math homework when he's trying to do this whole school at home thing. I saw it this week as, as Rachel and Piper left the house and hopped in the Jeep to go to the Alpha Care and, and deliver more essentials to some of the single moms in the community. I saw a number of our church members as they've, they went out the door once again into danger to work in the medical professional field. Seen it in my dear sister Sarah's life as she went again into the hot spot serving in the ER of Thomas Jefferson. That's what it looks like. It looks like doing things with our money. It looks like doing things with our time. It looks like doing things with our lives that aren't primarily about us getting, but about us giving. And my brothers and sisters, the best thing we can be orienting ourselves to give in this time of need is to let people know that Jesus went to Jerusalem and he did for us what absolutely needed to be done. He lived, he died, he rose from the dead, he drank the cup, he went under the baptism of God's wrath so that we who deserve his wrath would receive his mercy. That good news must be shared. Let's live our lives to share it. Jesus invites us this Palm Sunday to join him in living self-giving lives. He gave it all and he calls us to follow him on that path for the sake of the kingdom. That is an honorable life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
would you help us to join Jesus in wanting to live lives that bring you honor more than we want to bring honor to ourselves? Would you forgive us and help us to lament the reality that naturally we are self-serving men and women? That we want to live for our own little cake kingdom and build our little world and, and get all that we possibly can for us. Forgive us, oh God, for having such a small view of our reason for living. Would you help us to see Jesus giving it all in a unique way by laying down his life for us on the cross and joining him on that path by taking up our cross and following him on that path of self-giving. Help us to live our lives, not to get, but to live our lives to give. And Spirit of God, we invite your conviction. We invite you to make us feel uncomfortable about our selfishness, that we might confess it and receive the forgiveness and mercy that's ours in Christ Jesus. Not to wallow in condemnation, but to get up in repentance and to go in faith and to live our lives like the one who gave it all. Spirit of God, would you help us to respond appropriately to your holy agitation in our souls? And would you empower us to use our time and our talents and our treasures to serve others? God, right now there are so many needs all around us. And we want to lean into those needs and mercy and love. But we believe the greatest need of all is to declare this good news. That Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. Help us to join your son in living self-giving lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.